0: This SCCMI Critical Care Podcast is sponsored by Aspira Incorporated, the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Aspira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today I'll be speaking with Michael Klompus, MD. MPH, who's a lead author on an article published in December, Critical Care Medicine, titled Objective Surveillance Definitions for Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia. Klompas is an infectious disease physician and associate hospital epidemiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. He is also an assistant professor in the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute. Thank you so much for joining us here, Dr. Compass.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to to speak to you.
1: Thank you. And this is certainly a timely uh, topic for discussion. I know just yesterday I was in a a meeting of uh, ICU directors at our institution. uh, And uh, speaking of infection control issues and and specifically the um, diagnosis and surveillance of ventilator associated pneumonia uh, came up. And I I uh, noticed for the past six months or so in various discussions, uh, there seems, uh, to be a lot of, uh, I would say f- in some regards, um, fear, hesitation, um, concerns that, uh, the both old and, um, new, uh, definitions, um, may be, uh, difficult to, um, evaluate and, uh, collect appropriate data. Um, concerns that, uh, we will be penalized, uh, depending on where we lie within the, the system. And I think concerns that perhaps, um, uh, other institutions, um, and the way people infect, can <coughs> gather infection control data, uh, may be subject to, um, um, different interpretations of the data, and to be frank, I guess, um, you know, as, as you've alluded to in your, in your manuscripts, gaming the system, I was really hoping that you could uh, speak to some of those points and we could have a discussion uh, and try and elaborate uh, on the old and new definitions of uh, why the change and and help uh, address people's concerns as we move forward. Sure. Um,
2: so let me let me take a stab at that the the starting point i think for this this whole process is um the the rise of quality movements and of uh, pay for performance movements and of benchmarking and uh, accreditation movements that have been paying a great deal of attention to ventilator-associated pneumonia and vap and uh, frequently recurrently propose vap as the quality measure for ventilated patients and and by proxy then for icu care and I think, as any frontline clinician knows, it's highly, highly problematic, um, because as we, as we've all known, who spent time at the bedside of these, uh, these patients, um, three different thoughtful, conscientious, careful doctors will come to three different opinions as to whether or not a patient has a VAP or not, and what to do about it if, uh, if so, um, and it's. Uh, if that's the case for doctors looking at a patient, all the more so for infection preventionists who are trying to do uh, surveillance to actually generate the hospital's official VAP numbers, um, the definition that they've been trying to apply for the past uh, 10 years or so from CDC is really complicated and uh, really subjective in many of its components. It asks for things like a new or progressive infiltrate um, uh, an increase in the quality or the quantity of secretions, worsening oxygenation. And all of these criteria are very much in the in the eye of the beholder. Uh there's no formal criterion as to how to apply these very, very subjective um points for the definition. And so not surprisingly again, um thoughtful good people will come with very different answers. So if you get a few different infection preventionists look at the same set of patients, you'll get wildly different kind of VAP rates. And so it's, it's, it's inherently and grossly unreliable for benchmarking or accreditation. Um, so into this mix comes CMS, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who says to, to CDC, um, you've got to do something about this. They, we, we need... Uh, quality measures for ventilated patients, and we recognise that the VAP definition is not up to snuff for this purpose. Um, but that doesn't mean we can just let that, let the issue go. Um, and so CMS charged um, CDC to come up with a new definition And uh, I, I think that there was a sort of an implicit uh, recognition that if CDC didn't come up with new surveillance definitions, that, uh, that 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 there would be recourse to ICD-9 diagnoses instead, which if uh, if a If a surveillance definition at the bedside is bad, um, ICD diagnosis codes are are that much worse. And so I think CEC really felt they had no choice. They had to move forward. And so hence the the, the shift to these new definitions. Um, I would say the essence of these new definitions is that they're designed to be um, objective in their application above and all else. Um, there's uh, There's no sense whatsoever that these definitions increase accuracy. We're not trying to say that, that these definitions are give you a better read on who does, who does not have a VAP. In fact, the fascinating thing about these definitions is they say, let's all recognize that none of us can clearly say who does and does not have a VAP, and therefore, let's try to shift the focus of our surveillance away from VAP and to ventilate the complications more uh, more broadly. Um, so the So the starting point then is let's try to make it as objective as possible. Let's let go of the, the, really the canard that we can actually say who does and who does not have VAP using surveillance definitions. And, um, by shifting to a, a, a to a definition that's predicated upon still looking for respiratory decompensation in a patient who is otherwise doing well from a ventilator point of view, um, we, we get a couple of wins. And the wins are that first and foremost, we can make the definition much simpler and more objective. And secondly, uh, that if we no longer are focusing on VAP alone and we're shifting to respiratory complications in general, we broaden the focus of quality assessment and hence prevention to the, the bigger bundle of things that can go wrong with a ventilated patient. Why do we only care about pneumonia? Shouldn't we also care about um, patients who develop ARDS or pulmonary edema? Or atelectasis, or pulmonary emboli, um, so on and so forth. So, so the essence of these new definitions is actually to shift the focus away from pneumonia and onto complications in general, and at the same time make the, the the surveillance more more objective. Um, I think you're right that there still is a potential and the edges to be able to gain these new definitions. Um, yet, I think the potential is much much less than it is compared to the the the, the, the prior uh, CDC definitions. Because new definitions are mathematical, they're based upon looking for um, for objective markers of uh, respiratory deterioration using the patient's uh, daily minimum PEEP and FiO2, and those are those are hard and fast numbers. Um, so at least in terms of the application of the definition, uh, there's, uh, there's, there's the the room for gaming has been substantially constrained.
1: Yeah, I'd like to get further into the definitions, uh, the change, the new, new definitions and also, uh, more specifically, uh, your, um, study and, and, and what, what outcomes we were noted. Uh, before we do that, I'm thinking uh, you made some really great points. Um, but there are a few assumptions I think that we make, um, in this process. And, and I, I, I think I get the impression out there that there's still, some concern about well why why should we be publicly reporting this? Why should we not be doing um, quality improvement uh, internally uh, and and especially when we do move towards more public reporting and incentivize certain outcomes um, there it risks other effects that we necessarily weren 't um, anticipating, so for instance in the older definitions, the idea of um, Different interpretations of chest x-rays, different interpretations of, um, secretions to, to lessen our reported incidence of ventilator associated pneumonia. Uh, and finally, you know, as, as I think about the broader ventilatory associated events, the other assumption that we make is that all these or at least the vast majority, or, or maybe we're not making that assumption, but that they're preventable. That we have um, well-designed interventions that will pre- prevent and reduce the number of ventilator-associated events. And I was hoping you could speak to those ideas for for our audience.
2: Yeah. No. Listen. I think I think the starting question over there is why why are we getting to the business of public reporting anyway? Um, I, I think it's a great question. Um, but to some extent, that that the boat's already sailed. Um, we, as we, we all know, the Joint Commission, CMS, um, the uh, uh, state health department, uh, Congress, everyone has leapt on board on the idea that we should be somehow measuring quality of care in hospitals and, and linking it to accreditation, linking it to compensation. So whether or not um, you or I feel this is a good idea or a bad idea, um, I, the, the, the boats are sailed. So I think we have to make the best of, the, of that, that situation for now and try to use it actually as a positive to try to somehow drive care improvement. I think you're right that uh, the potential for unintended consequences always exists when you when you try to make something publicly reportable. Um, never underestimate the the human capacity to be creative and finding ways to um, make oneself look as good as possible from a from a data point of view. Um, but, uh, but but at least we have to, to, to try to do something. Now, CDC themselves um, are not requiring anybody to, to do this. Uh, this surveillance is an optional component of the National Healthcare Safety Network. And thus far, no regulatory authority has, has latched onto these definitions and said, let's make them publicly reportable. So right now, these are, are simply um, uh, options that are available for hospitals to be able to do uh, internal quality surveillance. Um will they ultimately be adopted by some external organizations? Very possibly. But that's that's actually not the current uh, state as of today. Um
1: now so I think that's I that's a, a very good point and I think that um in many ways people are uh not completely aware of that. So in the immediate future, uh there is no intent to use these definitions uh to either incentivize or disincentivize uh, at the level of care, is that is that my, what you're saying? There, there's there's
2: nothing that I'm, I'm not aware of any health department accreditation agency or payer who's saying I'm going to measure your quality based upon your VAE rates. So um, and <clears throat> even hospitals that are doing reporting to NHSN um, are not required to to do the VAE module as of uh, as of today. Right. So uh, it's it's entirely optional right now. My personal point of view is that we should gather a whole lot more data before we make this into a quality metric. Um and I think the key question we really want to know about is the one you alluded to, which is preventability. Um now we do have a couple of lines of evidence that suggests that that these things probably are preventable, although probably not are all or probably probably not all are preventable. Um and I can, can briefly summarize those for you because I think that is a million dollar question. That'd be wonderful. So um, first of all, just from the very way that the definition is constructed, it's designed to find a patient who was um, who had uh, improvement or stability on a ventilator as assessed by, a, um, by stable or decreasing daily minimum PEEP and or daily minimum FiO2 for at least two days. The event settings were going, basically staying the same or were getting better and then followed by two days of increased uh, ventilator settings, daily minimum PEEP or daily minimum FiO2. So by definition over here, we're capturing a patient who, who had a, a change in trajectory, who was improving or stable, and then suddenly required two or more days of, inc- of, of uh, increased uh, ventilator support. So that in and of itself should be capturing um, a complications, and they went wrong. Um, there certainly could be patients who have, have a staggered course on a ventilator where they might worsen on a, on a staggered basis, and so I'm sure that there will be some people who have existing conditions who, have, who are triggered by these, def- these events. But by and large, these are going to be patients who um, who were uh, who were who were doing fine, and then something happened. The other big line of evidence for this is that <clears throat> there've now been two papers um, that have taken qualitative analyses of patients who meet VAC ventilator associated condition uh, definitions, and um, they both had. Uh, uh, Physicians who are blinded to VAC status um, take a close look at a number of patients and try to say from their clinical point of view what they think actually went wrong with these individuals. And the two papers actually came, up, came out with pretty similar findings. They found that um, VAC, by and large, was attributable to one of four conditions in more or less equal proportions. And there was pneumonia, ARDS, atelectasis, and pulmonary edema. There's a scattering of other conditions along the way, um, uh, PE, uh, radiation pneumonitis, um, uh, abdominal compartment syndrome. But by and large, it was those four conditions. And those four conditions, we know, are to some extent uh, preventable. So the qualitative analysis um, backed that up. And then the third line of evidence has been the studies looking at the attributable um, morbidity and mortality of VAC and other uh, ventilator-associated events. And I'm, I'm aware now of five studies that have taken a look at the attributable morbidity and mortality. Um, three of which have been published uh, in manuscript. Uh, one has been published as a, manu- as a as an abstract, and one I think is is still uh, still on the way to to, to publication. Um, and what uh, these five studies have all found is that VACS are all associated with an increase in the t- in the attributable ventilator days and and um, hospital days. Um, four of the five have also found an, an independent association with VAC and increased hospital mortality. So we know in, in some that um, by design, these are patients who are doing better and then had a trajectory change. We know that on qualitative analysis, that the majority of these events are definable events that are preventable. And we know from adrenal mortal, morbidity mortality studies that these are serious events. So that's sort of the basis, I think, for for saying that that there probably is an aspect that these are complications and that by definition, they ought to be preventable.
1: The only way- Thank for reviewing some of that. I, I wanted to ask is uh, when, in that body of literature, were VACs uh, standardly defined and were they defined as per the current or upcoming CDC definitions? Uh, so almost, <laughs> that's a good question. The, the,
2: they, were, they were defined um, in, in, this, in the, the same framework, meaning looking for a change in the daily minimum PEEP or FiO2 after two days of, of stable uh, PEEP and FiO2. Um, but they use some of them use slightly different thresholds. So the official VAC um, CDC's threshold for, a, for a, a meaningful change that qualifies as VAC is an increase in the daily minimum PEEP of three or more centimeters of water, or the FiO2 of 20 or more uh, points of action. Um some of the studies use that, that threshold. Some of the older studies used earlier thresholds, um, two and a half centimeters of PEEP and 15 points of, uh, of FIO2. So pretty darn close,
1: but, but not quite exactly the same. Great. Thank you. Uh, well, did you want to make another point there? I, I did uh, interrupt your.
2: Of- All ah, right, so, so that, that I think what I've provided here is, is theoretical evidence that they're preventable, but I think that what, what we really need to see now is, is actual evidence of prospective studies or retrospective studies where they've been able to see a drop in VAC rate. Um, there's one, one study that's been published in abstract form in, uh, at, uh, at ID Week, which is the, the, the combined infectious disease and, uh, and hospital epidemiology meeting, um, which uh, did a retrospective analysis of the BATE study, which was um, done by the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group, where they implemented a um, uh, an educational program to increase the use of, um, of of the Canadian guidelines for ventilator care and ventilator management. They did that in 11 ICUs and uh, tracked it over a period of two years. And uh, what they and and they did indeed find that over the course of that study, there was a decrease in VAP rates using a very clinical definition. But on retrospective analysis of that data set, um, they applied the VAC definition and also found a trend towards decreased uh, VAC rate that just sort of barely squeezed its way to statistical significance. Um, so that study did actually find that, that, that it was possible to drop the VAC rate with a, with a, with a care improvement program. Um, I, I would say that that study is, uh, is light evidence right now about preventability um, because of uh, some, some internal issues with regard to that study. But at least it showed that then that it probably is possible to change the VAC rate. Um CDC though has uh, underway right now a um, a large multicenter prospective study to look at um the uh, the movability of the VAC uh, needle. And um that study is actually looking at the, the, the at whether period spontaneous awakening trials and breathing trials um can uh, can decrease VAC rates. Um, that study is expected to, I think, complete um, around uh, May of next year. So hopefully we'll have results from that uh, sometime uh, later in the year.
1: Great. Uh, it certainly uh, sounds as though it, there's been a very thoughtful approach uh, to the uh, development of uh, surveillance definitions. Uh, I was hoping, uh, since you were actually fairly involved um, in uh, the um, working group that uh, worked for these definitions. Uh, if you could describe the process and also, um, if we can just concretely define define the definitions if you will. Uh, sure, I can. So
2: concretely define the definitions. Um, so the, the VAE framework um, is based upon looking for a hierarchy of events. Uh, it says, first let's begin trying to find patients who suffered an episode of respiratory deterioration after a period of stability. And that's formally defined as, as a, as two days of stable or decreasing daily minimum PEEP or daily minimum FiO2, followed by two or more days of an, of an increase in the daily minimum PEEP or FiO2, an increase in the daily minimum PEEP by three or more centimeters of water, the FiO2 by, um, by uh, 20 or more points. Um, and those days of increase are relative to both of the two days of, uh, of, of stability. Um, the second tier says, now that we found a population of patients who have uh, suffered some, who have some, some suggestion that they suffered an episode of respiratory deterioration, let's try to work out which fraction of those are possibly infectious. So it says, take all the patients who have met the criteria for VAC, and now um, tr- look for which of those, at the time they had the increase in their ventilator setting, did they have the, um, uh, inflammatory changes? as marked by a uh, an abnormally high or low temperature, so temperature below 36 or above 38 or an abnormal uh, white blood cell count below 4 or above 12. And uh, if they had those, do they have a, a new antibiotic start that continued for at least four days? So uh, the, that second tier is called an infection-related uh, ventilator associated complication or IVAC and again IVAC is a VAC plus either an abnormal temperature or white blood cell count and uh, a new antibiotic start for four or more days. Once you've found the population of VACs that might be infectious, uh, the definition says let's try to hone down on those which are uh, which, which are, which are possibly of respiratory origin because we all know that, that uh, say, an abdominal catastrophe could set off uh, a bump in vent settings and might also merit uh, antibiotics and uh, certainly could have a temp and white blood cell changes. So IVAC, as a VAC, it's going to capture events outside of the the, the chest as well um, but the the third tier is to try to find the pneumonias and says so in a patient who has ivac um, look at their uh at their uh, respiratory secretions and that can be a BAL could be an endotracheal aspirate um and a patient who has um, objective markers of purulence, and you do that by looking at the gram stain, you need to have uh, 25 or more polys per low power field or, um, and fewer than 10 uh, epithelial cells. Uh, that's the marker of purulence. And a um, patient who has a pathogenic organism. And it says that if you have both of those things, both purulence and a pathogenic organism, we're going to call that probable pneumonia. And if you have uh, only one of those, just purulence or just a pathogenic organism, then you're going to be a possible ammonia. So that's the uh, third tier of the uh, the, uh, the definitions.
1: And can you speak to uh, the process for um, yeah development of the definitions and how they were vetted?
2: Yeah. So uh, what what happened was that. Um, CDC, about a year and a half ago, um, began this process of modifying the uh, the, the definitions. Um, there had been some early experimental work done by the CDC Prevention Epicenters, which is um, a research program at a- academic medical centers around the country that's funded by CDC that it began exploring some of these um, object- objective approaches to VAP surveillance. So they took that work and they used it to propose a, a straw man definition. And they pulled together representatives from um I think the key critical care stakeholders. So these are representatives from the Critical Care Society's Collaborative, which is the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, the American College of Chest Physicians, um, the, the American Thoracic Society, Society of Critical Care Medicine, uh, the American Association for Respiratory Care, um the infection control um uh, professional organization, the council of state and territorial epidemiologists, which is state health departments. Um and uh, the Infectious Disease Society of America and the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. So all all the uh, the key stakeholders were brought together. Um they were brought down to CDC. Um representation from these these, these societies was often at the uh at the president uh level, so these are high level uh, representatives. Um from SCCM, uh Pamela and Cliff Deutschman were, uh, were the were the, uh, the representatives. And um they Uh, showed them these new definitions, uh, the the straw man definition, and they went through them point by point, and uh, the group had a lively set of uh, debates and discussion around each component of the the definition, um, suggested a number of changes to to, to CDC, um, and ultimately came out with uh, the nascent form of what we currently have today. That was followed then by a sequence of um, of telephone calls, of conference calls with with the group over the ensuing... Um, six months or so where they nailed down some of the fine points around the uh the definitions. Um they then went back to each uh of the representative societies for vetting by their uh, by their leadership and uh ultimately then was promulgated by uh by C D C. So it was a very um interactive, collaborative, I'd say, um a collegial kind of a process that led to the development of these new definitions, with, a, with ultimately a great deal of buy-in from the representatives and the societies that were, were at the table. And I think I think it's because the, the members of the societies appreciated that we couldn't go on with the definitions as we have them now, because of uh, their subjectivity and their complex complexity and their uh, their predilection to be gamed. We had to do something, and this new approach by CDC was, while certainly not perfect. Um, was a big step forward. And so it says, if it's a step forward, then let's let's put ourselves behind it and uh, we'll continue to stress the need for further uh, research, for investigation, for feedback to CDC, with the understanding that there'll probably be further refinements down the road.
1: Great, thank you. And perhaps this is, it would be a great time uh, to to really speak to, to your study, um, what your intent was, uh, how you went about, um your research and, and most importantly, obviously the, the findings, uh, that, uh, in some ways to me were, were surprising in relationship to infections versus non-infection etiologies. Um, can you, can you take us through that? That would be great.
2: Yeah. So what we wanted to do was um, to say, let, let's sit down from first principles and say, if you wanted to design an objective definition for VAP surveillance, how would you do it? And so we, we said, well, what are the what are the, the, the standard clinical um, ingredients that normally go into making a diagnosis of VAP? So that's things like uh, the chest radiographs and uh, P to F ratios and uh, the, the sputum analysis and procalcitonin and and so forth. We put them on a big list, everything you could think of that might go into a VAP diagnosis. And then for each of those criteria, we um, we analyze them uh, for their suitability for the specific application of surveillance. Not for for for, for bedside diagnosis because that's a, that's a whole different um, operation, but what's their suitability for a surveillance definition? And we said for something to be suitable for a surveillance definition, first of all, it has to be acquired on on just about all patients, just about every day. Um, Because otherwise, by definition, you're not going to capture some some important fraction of patients. That immediately rules out something like procalcitonin, for example. Um, It also rules out something like a P to F ratio, which um, is not always obtained from an arterial source. Sometimes it's, uh, it's, you know, we use venous gases, and not obtained every day. Um, And then we said, if if it's a routine measure, Secondly, is it objective? Can it be mathematically defined? And that's that's the one that knocks out things like uh, radiographic infiltrates, the quantity or the quality of sputum, cough, dyspnea, breath sounds, mental status changes. The other ingredients that a very thoughtful clinician might be using at the the bedside, they're not objective and therefore they're not suitable for a surveillance definition. The third criterion we wanted to look at is can it potentially be, a, be, be acquired from an electronic source? We ultimately want to make surveillance as efficient as possible. And so um, if something can be acquired from the electronic medical record, um, that, that, that's a huge win in terms of the, the efficiency and the, or the feasibility of surveillance. So potentials to be acquired electronically. And ultimately, what we end up with was saying that, that of this big list of potential criteria, the ones that fit these criteria of routine, for so every patient every day, objective, which means mathematical, and potentially uh, acquirable from an electronic health record were the following. There's the temperature, the white blood cell count, um, gram stain neutrophils um, from a uh, from either a, a sputum or a BAL specimen, uh, worsening oxygenation as measured by uh, a rise in the FiO2, uh, increasing ventilator support, a rise in, in the PEEP, um, the presence of pathogenic organisms on a culture, and that was it. And so we took those uh, those uh, those six criteria and we said, let's try to come up with objective definitions that use, uh, use uh, one or more of these criteria. And we laid down, I think, 32 different potential combinations of these um, that kind of made sense from a clinical point of view. So, for example, the simplest of definition would simply be to say a patient who has a positive culture for a pathogenic organism. Um, a more complex uh, definition using these criteria would be to say, look for a patient who has worsening oxygenation as measured by a rise in their daily minimum PEEP or FiO2 plus an abnormal temperature or white blood cell count, plus parallel secretions, plus a pathogenic culture. Um, that might be a very uh, you know, elaborate and involved for definition using these criteria. For each of these 32 combinations, these, these 32 potential definitions, then we said, Let's try to work out if it's any good or not. And when we want to work out if each of these potential KANZE definitions were any good or not, we really scratched our heads because it's not actually apparent how to do that. Um, The problem is that there's no real gold standard uh, to diagnose VAP uh, except perhaps for for autopsy or biopsy. And, of course, that's not realistic for a surveillance study. Um, So we said in the absence of being able to definitively know who does and does not have pneumonia because we can't do autopsies, the next best thing is to look at the association of each of these potential definitions with uh, patient outcomes. So we said, let's try to work out the attributable ventilator, day, ventilator days, hospital days, and mortality for each of these 32 candidate definitions. And uh, we argued that if we found a definition that, um, that, uh, that was made up of classic VAP diagnostic criteria that was objective and was a, a powerful predictor of adverse outcomes for ventilated patients. That, that was kind of um, uh, the best we could do, but a good step forward in terms of of making surveillance more objective and more meaningful. And so we did that. And so, um,
1: to interrupt briefly, I I, I found that um, uh, quite helpful. In, in some ways, even a better uh, endpoint or outcome than the diagnosis of some gold standard of app much more clinical. Clinically meaningful that, that yes, if we if we alter these, that we will have some impact on outcomes in clinical care. Right, right, and and that ultimately is the the, the goal for all
2: of us. So uh, using that that framework, then we analyze these thirty-two different uh, definitions, and we found uh, interestingly enough that just about all of them were associated with an increase in ventilator days and hospital days and, uh, and mortality. Um, with the exception of those that looked just for pulmonary secretions, for pulmonary secretions, or a pathogenic culture alone, those were only associated with increase in ventilator days. Um, however, all the criteria that included some marker of respiratory deterioration, in other words, a, a jump in the daily minimum PEEP or FiO2, were all associated with increased ventilator days and hospital days and mortality. And fascinatingly enough, we found that if you that if you added additional criteria beyond just the worsening oxygenation, beyond just the change in PEEP and FIO2, it it didn't do much. It didn't really change the attributable uh, morbidity or mortality, um, but it did did decrease uh, event rates, meaning that you were capturing um, fewer events, but there were no more serious events compared to looking at the entire bundle of of patients who had had, uh, uh, respiratory deterioration based on PEEP and FIO2. And so um, that, then was uh, really affirmation for the, the approach that it had already been taken by the, the working group to say we should shift surveillance away from something that's trying to get a pneumonia just to looking at respiratory deteriorations alone. In other words, we were learning from this process that by focusing on pneumonia alone, we were miss- missing a big population of patients who were suffering serious um, events in the ICU that were associated with a real uh, cost in their outcomes. As they said, pull the focus of surveillance back. Don't just look at pneumonia alone. Go back to respiratory deteriorations in general. And a, it allows you to go to the, to the simplest of these definitions, which is just the rise in daily minimum P or FiO2. And b, you capture a much larger population of patients that are perhaps suffering complications of critical care. Um, so. Although we actually did, th- th- this finding, this paper came out after the the working group was already well underway and already had settled on that, that approach, um, it, this affirmed um, that there was some wisdom to what they had
1: uh, intuitively settled upon. So I, I, I just want to uh, make sure I fully understand that last point that you made in terms of the timing. The results uh, from this study uh, then did not inform the working group um, in terms of uh, the working group was
2: right. This this study, the early results of the study became available um, after a a, a good number of months after the working group had already uh, was already underway. Uh, now there, this there had been um, at least one study prior to this, which had already shown that this 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 approach is a is a predictor of uh, of, of increased hospital mortality and a better predictor of hospital mortality than VAP. So they were not completely uh, data blind, but this particular study I think was not known to the working group when they when they set out on their job.
1: So it it, it does represent, and you know, I think change is always. Um, not always welcome i would say but it does t- it does represent a significant um paradigm shift uh for how we're defining um ventilator uh, associated events with the concept of previously we were really mostly concerned with primary pulmonary infection where this is a much broader uh definition that includes um many other events and in fact what you're saying is that if we take out some of the um, the the components of the definition that solely rely on presence of pulmonary infection that the outcomes are more uh, impact in terms of mortality length of stay in the icu and ventilator days Uh, and with hopefully more research we'll come up with ways of preventing those events uh, some of which we already have some knowledge about but we'll be able to better define and then Apply those uh, surveillance methods to further research in the future.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And my my my, my personal opinion is that we shouldn't make this a a a benchmark a value or a, a pay for performance measure until we have definitive evidence that uh, that we do have preventability. I think we have got to be careful here not to let the policy get ahead of the
0: science.
1: And so, as a critical care community. Um, how do we move forward uh in in those terms of avoiding this becoming a paper performance um, benchmark? what are our mechanisms and what has already been done um uh, from uh, our various societies uh, already
2: yeah that that's a that's a good question um I'm not sure that that there's been discussion yet about uh, making these uh, pay performance benchmarks I don't think there's been a formal um Tier to respond to. I will say that when CDC speaks about these new definitions, um, they say that if these were to be used for pay for performance, they would they would uh, they would only advocate the use of the first two tiers of the definitions, the VAC and IVAC. They would uh, avoid the uh, pneumonia tier um, because of a great deal of variability about the around the way that hospitals acquire and uh, look at cultures. But beyond that, I think it's um, it's the usual pathways of. Um, for, for frontline clinicians to um, to be to thoughtfully engage uh, with um, the, the the quality community to uh, to talk about these definitions with uh, with people from, from quality organisations, at the Joint Commission, it's uh, CMS, it's potentially legislators depending it's uh, quality organisations depending on whatever the landscape is around your own uh, your own hospital, and to, to let them know your, your, your feelings on these issues. And then, if uh, some of these uh, organisations do propose to make these definitions into to benchmarks, um, we will take we should take stock of the situation at that time and see if the science has uh, has given any more credence to that approach. And if not, uh, we should engage through our societies, through their legislative channels and their advocacy channels to try to put forward the idea that uh, that hey, we're not ready for that yet.
1: Yes, I was thinking about your. Um what you've uh, suggested that the CDC is advocating in terms of how hospitals acquire data. Uh, I think that's one other uh, concern that I've heard in, in terms of how how we need to change our systems to respond to these definitions so that we can do a good job of uh, surveillance. Uh, and it requires some manipulation of current um, uh, electronic records uh, of reporting of uh, cultures and gram stains. Uh, uh, I don't know if you want to speak to those those changes and uh, how the hospital's involved, uh, whether whether standard uh, approaches or sta- was there a standard EMR, for instance. Yeah, I I, I think that um,
2: your your point is 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 bang on. This is a radical frame shift in the way that uh, the infection control departments are currently doing surveillance for ventilated patients and. Um, the, the the primary challenge that they have to face on the bed is how to acquire the uh, the the data. Um, primarily, the ventilated settings, which is not something that uh, infection preventionists have paid attention to before. Um, the 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 pathway to doing that, I think, is very very variable depending on what's going on inside your hospital. Now, there are hospitals who capture those data electronically and therefore have the capacity to to generate uh, reports for infection control. That either lay out the daily ventilator settings, or uh, or even mathematically apply these definitions, because they, the, the new definitions are 100% computable, um, which is a big big uh, big innovation. So if your hospital has Slick IT, then that's that's obviously a wonderful way to uh, to go. Um, many hospitals do not, though. So I think the next best thing is to work out a way to collect those data from the uh, the bedside. And I think that what that requires is um, partnership between uh, infection control, uh, respiratory therapy, and possibly uh, possibly nursing, because respiratory therapy certainly knows the the, the ventilator settings um, intimately and uh, is recording them already on a, on a regular basis. So, is there a way to take advantage of whatever whatever recording mechanisms respiratory therapy already has? And if if not, then of course the bedside nurse would be the the, the next best approach. Um, I would say that uh that the moment you say I'm going to ask somebody new to get some data for me be it respiratory therapy or or nursing um that they're going to throw their arms up and say we don't we've got enough work already. Um but I think it's worth remembering um two points. One is that the ask is actually incredibly small. You're asking for only two values per day, just the daily minimum peep and FiO2. That's it. So the the ask is very small. And secondly, um take a step back and, and look at the big picture of what we're trying to do over here. We're trying to get a better handle on what our complication rates are for our ventilated patients so that ultimately we can uh, work out where the, where the intervenable opportunities might lie so that we can improve our patients' outcomes. Um, and if that's not what we're here to, to do as, uh, as as clinicians, then I'm not sure we are what we are here for. Um, so I think uh, exploring your hospital's existing IT environment Exploring what your respiratory therapy department is capturing, exploring what they can capture for you in the future is sort of the, 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 the pathway to, uh, to operationalization. The other tiers, the definition for IVAC and the pneumonia, where you have to look at the temperature, the white blood cell count, the, the, the microbiology, um, they're, they're easier. And they're easier for, for a couple of reasons. One is that um, you only have to look at those criteria in a subset of patients who have a VAC. And we know now from a number of different uh, looks that in practice only about five to ten percent of the, of the ventilated population meets that criteria. So that, that extra data is really be only needed for a small subset of the population, and therefore not worth gathering it on everyone. Only on those patients in whom you uh, you need it. And for those patients, you only need to have those data for us for the time window immediately surrounding the change in ventilator setting, uh, specifically the five-day window. Uh, Starting two days before the increase in ventilator settings, that so the actual extra temperature, white blood cell count, et cetera, that you need to find, is is not that uh, that uh, that difficult to uh, to to locate. And then thirdly, um, the antibiotic criteria, um, although it sounds easy to say four days of a new antibiotic, when you sort of think through that, that it is a bit complicated to apply. What constitutes a new antibiotic? How do you handle patients getting renal dosing of vancomycin or a quinolone or something like that? Um, and so CDC has laid out uh, rules for how to apply that four-day um, uh, that four-day criterion. Uh, they can be accessed on CDC's website. If you Google CDC VAE, you'll come to their homepage where you can see all the uh, the, the formal uh, specifications. Um, but what CDC has also created is an online tool. That'll enable infection preventionists to apply these definitions automatically. So where the infection preventionists can enter in for a patient their particular PEEP, Fi 2 temperature, white blood cell count, and antibiotics. And this web-based tool will actually spit out the answer whether the patient meets criteria or not. And so, um, that's, a, I think, will be a big help towards people to, uh, to apply these new definitions.
1: Great. Thank you for that information. Uh- You know, I think we learned some lessons from the previous definition, uh, in terms of the variability of interpretation and the opportunities to alter definitions, uh, to best, uh, suit our concern about reporting these issues. And I, I wonder how much thought has been taken in terms of, well, what are, what are the possibilities of ways that, um, either physicians or infection preventionists can manipulate uh, the bedside data um, in the future and how can we best avoid uh, the gaming of the system uh, that folks are concerned about?
2: Well, I would say actually the capacity for gaming is not with the infection preventionists uh, who will simply be applying this definition based upon the, the, the quantitative data at the, the bedside. I'd say the opportunities for gaming actually lie more in the hands of the physicians. Um,
1: who, uh, you know, without being explicit, could, could thank, think thank of you ways you for to, to, me to, to in that. Thank you for correcting my, uh, statement there. I appreciate No, that. no, that's okay. Um, so, so I think that, that, uh,
2: physicians could manipulate PEEPs and FIO2s in ways that might, uh, lead to very low rates. Um, I think physicians also have it at their discretion as to how they use antibiotics and whether or not they choose to order cultures and whether or not they include gram stains on those cultures. Those are all potential mechanisms by which um, a person who really was dedicated to getting their rates as low as possible without actually doing anything to improve patient care, or they could actually manage to to, uh, to make a move. Um, but um, I, I I hope that people will embrace the spirit of these uh, these definitions, which is not to make yourself to look as good as possible, but to, to actually work out what's happening with your ventilated population. and. Um, how do you compare it to, to other similar kinds of, of ICUs and is this potentially a way to identify patients in whom uh, there might be care improvements that you could institute at the, uh, the ICU level? Um, I don't think any definition will ever be completely free of gaming opportunities. This one is substantially better than the last one but if you're
1: really determined, um, you will find a way to, to, uh, to get your rates artificially low. Yeah, I really appreciate your candid discussion here. I think uh, I've learned a few takeaway points um, that uh, I think can help alleviate uh, some concern uh, at least in our institution and locally. Uh, I I think one is that uh, I think the big one really right now is that these are not going to be used uh, for uh, value based purchasing, for uh, incentivization from a legislative or regulatory body. Uh, the, The second is that the New definitions, I would say, uh, seem in some ways more logical, much more objective, uh, and, uh, subject to less interpretation. Uh, and that thirdly, these are really used for us to provide, um, the quality care that we want to at the bedside, uh, and to very much evaluate opportunities for performance improvement, so that we ultimately can further our care in the ICU and improve patient care uh, for the future. And I was thought you could help summarize and and, uh, and, and give some additional points or or uh, elaborate on those as we close. No,
2: I think that's a that's a beautiful summary, and
1: and uh, I think you've
2: really grasped the, some of the, the, I think, the exciting features of this new definition. Um, one of my my current mantras that I'm on is, is, is that I, I think that better surveillance can lead to better care because better surveillance uh, will give you a more realistic impression of where the care improvement opportunities lie inside of your ICU and therefore allow you to, to work out what the intervenable opportunities uh, might lie. So I, I, I think that these new, new definitions are really an opportunity. An opportunity to get a better grip on what's happening in your ICU, and therefore to 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 broaden your sense of what you can do to improve care. And I think if we embrace them in that spirit, uh, then then really we can can hopefully do some good with these new definitions. Um, let me just make one last side point over here, which is that um, I'm pretty sure that these definitions, um, while they will capture a, well, by and large will capture preventable complications. They, they will also scoop along along the way some events that are not preventable. And therefore, I don't think that with VAC, that uh, it, it's realistic to actually get to zero, certainly in an ICU of uh, of, of 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 decent size and and uh, and complexity. Um, so, the conversation should shift away from getting to zero with regard to these with VACS. But rather simply lowering your rate from what it is now to uh,
1: to what you'd like it to be in the future. Thank you. I think that's comforting. Uh, you know, in, in some regards, I always think, well, perhaps the uh, endpoint is zero, but not based on our current understanding of preventability. For preventability, uh, and perhaps someday we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I really appreciate it. Was a, I think a wonderful discussion and. Uh, I know I learned a lot, and I hope uh, that our audience uh, has a lot to take away from this um, and perhaps uh, alleviate some anxiety uh, as the new year comes and these definitions uh, go into effect. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to speak with you. I enjoyed the conversation, and uh, thank you. Thank you, and have a great evening.
0: Aspira Incorporated is the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio which includes Presidex, dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.haspira.com. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The Eye Critical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.